Scripture reading for this morning is taken from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, if you'd like to follow along. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Well, good morning. Could do better. Good morning. All right. Hey, welcome to Grace. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them at this point in time and uh, turn with me to the book of Titus. It's a small book. You'll find it uh, towards the end of your New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible that's in the pew backs in front of you, you can turn to page 966. Titus chapter 3 is where we are going to be, verses 3 through 8, as we learn about grace experienced and grace extended. That is, when we experience the grace of God, we but can't help uh, but extend that very same grace to other people. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. If you don't have your own Bible, the text should be on the screen behind me. So let's uh, find uh, Titus 3, and we'll pray, and we'll dive right in. So let's pray together. Father, we pray for your blessings this morning upon your word as it's read, and as it's taught, and as it's preached, and uh, as it is heard and received. Father, we so desire uh, that your Holy Spirit come, and that Spirit, you would work through me, and that you would work in all of us uh, to make us the kind of people that you want us to be. Father, in particular this morning, as we ponder just a bit on the salvation that you have offered all mankind, and uh, the abundant grace and loving kindness that you have demonstrated to us, that while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to, to die for us. And as we ponder the grace and the forgiveness and the love and the generosity that you have bestowed upon us and the way that you have changed us at our conversion when we placed our faith in Jesus, may we then uh, demonstrate and and, uh, instinctively show that kind of grace, that kind of patience, that kind of generosity, that kind of kindness to all of those that we come in contact with. Father, especially those who don't share the faith that we have and who don't uh, have a, a knowledge of the Savior that we serve and that we profess. And so make us useful. Make us grace receivers and help us to be grace extenders. We ask it in the name of our gracious God and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in his name we all pray. Amen. So I want to ask you a question this morning, uh, kind of a question to help us frame the text to help us begin to think about uh, the subject that Paul will introduce this morning. And the question is this, what is the biggest act of grace that has been shown to you? What is the biggest act of kindness, the biggest act of grace that someone has extended to you? And then part two of the question is in, is this, how did that gracious act affect how you treated 
other people? That is, how did it, it affect you? And then how did you respond maybe differently to other people? What's the biggest act of grace that you've experienced? And then how has that shaped how you respond to other people? Well, as I asked myself that question, I began to think about it. And uh, while certainly there have been innumerable acts of, of grace and kindness that all sorts of people have showed to me in my life, one particular act of kindness and grace kind of came to the forefront. And uh, maybe you've heard this before, but I'll share it with you again. I was in seminary, and my wife and I were fairly newly married. And so, number one, we were newly married. Number two, we were both in seminary. And uh, what that means is that we were broke. Okay, we didn't have much money. We were poor seminary students, as typically students come. And so uh, she had her own vehicle, and uh, I had my own vehicle. I had a 95 Ford Mustang. It was forest green, and it went really fast, and it was a good car. Um, however, I had had it for quite some time, and uh, it was getting to be kind of on its last leg. Noises were happening. Things were breaking down. You know how it goes when a car is kind of getting towards the end. However, as I said before, we were newly married and we were seminary students. So I didn't have some money just laying around to go purchase a new vehicle. Well, long story short, I got a phone call from my pastor one day. I was a youth pastor in Dallas and uh, the pastor that I was serving under called me. And I, I was there on campus and I remember him saying, Trey, are you sitting down? And I thought this was an odd question. I said, no, I'm standing up and walking to class. And he said, well, you should, you should find a place to sit down. And so I was like, great, this is going to be bad, bad news. Like, what did I do, right? What did one of my students do? You know, this was going to be bad, I thought. So I sat down on one of the seminary benches there uh, on beautiful campus at Dallas Seminary. And he said, uh, somebody has written you a check. Somebody has given you some money, uh, a substantial amount of money, because they want you to replace that clunker of a car that you drive. And I said, excuse me? And he said, someone has given you $12,000, anonymously donated $12,000 to you and your wife, and they want you to go purchase a new vehicle and to get rid of that uh, Ford Mustang that is so beloved. And I was speechless. I didn't know what to say. I had never had anyone offer me uh, that kind of a gift before. And so I remember uh, kind of jogging to my wife's office. She worked at the seminary at the time and uh, kind of uh, bounding up the, the, stair, the flight of stairs where she worked and knocking on the door and entering her office and saying, are you sitting down? Well, you need to be. And I shared the wondrous news. And it was a, an incredible thing that obviously still impacts me to this day. And so what we did is uh, we uh, went out and did our homework. And long story short, we bought uh, the white Hyundai Santa Fe SUV that I used to drive. I don't currently because uh, a deer got in my way. So I don't drive that anymore. Um, (laughs) uh, But it was a good car for us for a number of years. So we went out and we bought us this this new-to-us car. And it was an incredible act of grace, and we were overflowing with thanksgiving and, and, uh, and generosity uh, towards other people. But that's not the end of the story. So we then had three cars, new one, Shelley's, and my old. And we didn't, knew, we didn't need three cars. We only had two people in our family. And so we went about to begin the process of selling my vehicle. And so we went about, and we were going to sell it like you would expect, and we thought we might be able to get a little bit of money for it, right? It's an old car, but... It's a Mustang, and maybe we can get a few thousand bucks. And so we went out to do that. And uh, one day, 
I don't really even remember the circumstances in which we found this out. Uh, But we lived in seminary housing, married housing, so there were families and married folks in the large tower there at the seminary. And we found out about a gentleman who he and his wife and his family were from India. Uh, Not Indiana over there, but India, the country of India. And he had come as uh, an Indian student to come learn the Bible and to go plant churches in a very dangerous place in India. Now, he and his family had come, and uh, they had gone without a car for about a year. But his family was uh, getting older, and his kids were needing uh, transportation to get back and forth from school. His wife um, actually walked with a fairly uh, severe limp. Uh, She had contracted a a rare disease in India and didn't get proper medical treatment. And so uh, she kind of walked with a limp and had some difficulties. Uh, I, I knew him. I wasn't his friend, but I went to class with him, you know, kind of knew his story, that kind of a thing. And we got wind that he and his family needed a vehicle. And so we had a decision to make because somebody had just so generously given us a car. And here we had the choice as to selling our vehicle or giving the vehicle away. And of course, we decided to do that. We gave my Ford Mustang to this family. And as far as I know, it was still working. By the time we graduated, we moved on and moved up north here to the great state of Illinois. And uh, as far as I know, the car was still running for them. Um, And and I share this story to, to make a point, right? To answer these first two questions. What's the biggest act of grace that anyone has ever shown to you? And then how did that affect you? Because here's the point. Here's the point, not just of my story, but here's really the central point of our passage today in Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. And here it is. Grace experienced should lead to grace extended. When we experience grace in our lives, we should then extend that grace to others. Not just we should, but how can we help but not extending that grace to other people. Paul is going to say that because we have experienced the amazing grace of God, that we should extend a similar kind of experience, particularly to unbelievers, to those who haven't uh, come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. You may recall last week we got into chapter 3, and in verses 1 and 2, Paul Paul told us how to be, number one, good citizens, and number two, how to be good neighbors. That is, how should we live in an unbelieving world? How should we be good citizens? How should we be good neighbors? How should we treat people who don't share our faith? And he told us how to do that in verses 1 and 2. Well, now as we move into into, uh, verses 3 through 8, he's not going to tell us how, but he's going to give us the why. Why should we treat people that way? Why should we extend grace? Why should we be compassionate? Why should we be patient with people who are unbelievers? Well, quite simply, because grace experienced should lead to grace extended. Three reasons here in these short five verses, three reasons why we should be involved in being good, in doing good deeds to non-Christians. Number one, it's found in verse three, because Paul says we used to be like them. Number two, because God has been gracious to us, verses four through seven. And number three, verse eight, Because grace generates good works. Why should we be and do good to everyone? Why should we be helpful, profitable? Why should we be engaged in the life of the lost? Well, Paul, three reasons. Let's take a look at the first one, starting in verse 3 in your Bibles. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. We should do good 
to unbelievers because we were in their shoes, because we used to be one of them, because we used to be like them. You know, you may uh, oftentimes hear interviews of famous athletes or, or movie stars. I oftentimes hear uh, interviews with athletes who are now famous, and they're rich, and they're superstars, right? And mega millionaires. And it's interesting because oftentimes uh, they will speak of where they came from. Sometimes you'll kind of see an image or they'll go back to, to the inner city neighborhood and you'll see the small, uh, maybe one or two bedroom house where they grew up. And they talk about growing up in poverty. Poverty. They maybe they talk about kind of going back to tough neighborhoods and, and that they shouldn't forget where they came from. They often return and they invest their millions of dollars in the inner city where they came back. And you'll hear the, the words uh, kind of echo from their lips. You know, I, I haven't forgotten where I've come from, right? I haven't forgotten where I've come from. I think the same principle is true spiritually speaking, Lest they, and lest we forget where we came from spiritually, Paul talks to the the Christians there on the island of Crete and to the Christians here in the village of Cisna Park, and he tells us that we should do good to unbelievers because we used to be like them before our conversion. Notice what he says in verse 3. He says, at one time, we too, notice that, at one time, in the past, if you're a Christian, At one time, we too, we too used to be like them. We too used to be an unbeliever. We too didn't know Christ. We too were ruled by sin. We too had no hope. We too did whatever we wanted and disregarded God. Notice what Paul says. We too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. Here we get a list of seven traits, seven lifestyle characteristics of a person who doesn't know Christ. And friend, we all used to be this. I don't care if you were a good lost person or a bad lost person. This was you. This was me to some degree. It's a, it's a list of seven character traits. It Truly should be the seven deadly sins of the unbeliever, right? Seven things that characterized us before we came to know Christ. What are those seven things? Let's look at them briefly. Number one, we were foolish. You were foolish. I was foolish. Biblically speaking, that means we didn't and we wouldn't. We did not and we would not believe the gospel, and we did not and we would not believe the Bible. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 1.18 clearly. He says the message of the cross is what? Foolishness. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Friends, you and I used to be spiritually stupid, right? We were foolish. We rejected the gospel. We rejected the Bible. Not only that, we were disobedient. We were disobedient to God's command to repent and to trust in Jesus. And generally speaking, our life was marked by disobedience. That doesn't mean we were as bad as we could be. It just means that generally speaking, we disobeyed God. It's in our very nature. Number three, we were deceived. Paul says, listen, you are foolish. Remember, Corinthian, Cretan uh, uh, Christians. Remember, Cisnepark Christians. You are foolish. You were disobedient. Number three, you were deceived. You were deceived. You were self-deceived, and you were satanically deceived. I was self-deceived, and I was satanically deceived into thinking that we could get away with our rebellion, into thinking that we didn't need Christ, into thinking that we could live life by our own rules, that we could do it our own way, right? That we were the master of our own future. 
that we wouldn't be held accountable by God. Paul warns of this in Galatians 6-7. He says, do not be what? Deceived, right? Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. A man reaps what he sows. We're We're about to experience that as a community, right? As our farmers get out into the field. You reap what you sow. Paul says that's true spiritually. We reap eternity in hell because of the sin that we sow apart from Christ. Don't be deceived into thinking that we can get away with rejecting Christ and living for ourselves. I want to share a quick story. Uh, Just this week, uh, I came home for lunch, and uh, Shelly and I were chatting like we normally do at lunch. Hey, how's it going? How are the kids? How are the girls doing? How's work going? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, Shelly was telling me a funny story uh, about something that uh, uh, number three, Sawyer, our two, two-year-old, uh, did. And so she said, you know, I was, I was calling for Sawyer and Piper, maybe for lunch or something, and uh, I couldn't find Sawyer. And so she started to look around, and she looked in the bedrooms, and she couldn't find her, and she looked in the restrooms and couldn't find Sawyer. Sawyer, Sawyer, where are you? No response. Well, that's kind of unusual. And uh, so she went into our bedroom, and she noticed uh, a, a bit of a silhouette of a, of a little person underneath the covers uh, of our bed. And so she thought, okay, Sawyer is playing a game with me. She's playing hide-and-seek, something like that, and so I'll play along, right? Sawyer, where are you? Sawyer, where are you? And you get closer and closer. Sawyer, you tap her on the head. Sawyer, where are you, right? Come out, come out, wherever you are. And she pulled back the covers, and there is my two-year-old daughter with a big fat lollipop in her mouth, licking away at that thing and eating it under the covers, Why is she eating it under the covers? Because she maybe thinks that if nobody sees her, nobody will know and find out that she's doing something that she knew she wasn't supposed to do. Friends, Paul says that we used to be deceived like my daughter, that we thought we could pull the covers over the sin in our life and think that we would not be held accountable. Not only were we foolish and disobedient, deceived, but notice number four, we were enslaved. We were slaves. We were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Friends, when we come out of the womb, we come out with shackles on our feet and shackles on our hand, and sin is our master. It is holding the whip. We are, by nature, enslaved to sin. We can't help it, and we love doing it. Number five, we all lived, Paul says, in malice. That is, having a desire to inflict harm, to see suffering to come on another person. Instead of loving our neighbor, we hate our neighbor. And then number six, we were envious. We did a whole sermon on this, but if you remember, envy is the spirit that can't bear to see other people succeed. And oftentimes, when we see them succeeding and us not, we wish harm on them. We want them to suffer, which leads to number seven. We were hated, that is, we were being hated, and we were hating one another. Not only did we hate other people, but they hated us back, right? This is a, this is a, a difficult list. Paul says, brothers and sisters on Crete and in Cisna Park, remember where you came from. Don't, don't ever forget the condition from which you were salvaged. So friends, why should we Why should we treat our unbelieving neighbors and friends with respect? Why should we be gentle to them? Why should we be patient with them? We should be all of those things. We should do good to them because we too were once lost. We too needed someone, a Christian, to show us another way, to show us another lifestyle, to show us a life honoring to God, to show us joy, to show us 
peace to show us what a person who can be secure in their salvation looks like. We needed someone to show us that. And the people around you who aren't Christians, they need you as a believer to do that. And so we should never forget where we came from spiritually. And you will never forget to do good to those around you if you remember that you were once in their shoes. If you remember that you used to come where they came from. So why should we do good? Paul says, we used to be one of them. But that's not it. Number two, we should be good and do good to all people because God has been gracious to us. Notice what he says in verses four through seven. This is kind of the second major theological um, uh, treatise on salvation where Paul kind of fleshes out, what does God's salvation look like? What does God's grace look like? The second reason we're to do good is because God has done good to us. He saved us by his grace. I want us to know, to, to see four things here about a salvation that we have experienced, if you are a Christian, that should motivate us to mimic the grace of God that he has shown to us. Number one, salvation is a demonstration of God's love. Notice what verse four says, but, but, but when the kindness and the love of God our Savior appeared, what did he do? He saved us. This speaks to the motivation. It shows us God's motivation for saving us from our sin, from its penalty, from its power, from its presence. Notice, it's the kindness of God. It's the love of God that motivated him to save us, which he demonstrated in the appearing of his son by giving up his own son for us. An incredible love. Notice the verses on the screen behind you. Romans 5 speaks of this incredible love that God has shown us. Verse 6, chapter 5 of of Romans. Paul says, you see, you see at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still what? Sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let me ask you a question. If there were a murderer on death row and he is as guilty as guilty can be, he is guilty, he deserves death, he's about to get the chair or the needle, he's about to die, and there was one way to save him, you were to give your only child in his place to take the needle and to take the chair for him. Would you do that? I would venture to say that none of us would do that for an evil, wicked person. What if it was a a decent person? Just like a person probably like me and you, right? Just a, a a good person, a good guy, a good gal. And they were innocent. They didn't deserve to die, but they're slotted to die. Would you give your child for that person, a, a good person? Maybe. I don't know about you. I probably wouldn't. Thankfully, God's love is very different than ours. Notice what Paul says in Romans 5. He sent Jesus, his son, to die, not for good people, not for righteous people, but for sinners, for ungodly people like me and you. So we can sing the words of the song that we just sung. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure. Why? That he would give his only son to make a wretch, me and you, his treasure. So salvation is a demonstration of God's incredible love for us. But not only that, but salvation is not by merit, but it's by mercy. Notice what Paul says. He saved us, not, he's, he's going to tell us how we're not saved. He saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but 
because of his mercy. Salvation is not by merit, but it's by mercy, right? Why are we not saved? Because of the righteous things that we had done. This is why the old hymn, Rock of Ages, says this, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. So if you, friend, think that you are made right with God, that you will be spending eternity in heaven because somehow you are good enough or you have done enough, or you are righteous enough, somehow you merit this gift of salvation, you will be desperately wrong. Friends, it's not merited, but it's because of what? Notice, it's because of his mercy. Mercy is God looking upon our lost and miserable state and deciding not to give us the punishment that we deserve, but offering his son in our stead, in our place. God looked at our sad estate and had mercy. He provided a way of escape. Salvation is not only by merit, uh, not by merit, but by mercy. But notice number three, salvation is through a rebirth. It's through a rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Paul now tells us how God the Father saves us. Notice, he saved us through, through this means, through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior. Here Paul tells us how God the Father saves us. Notice, it's through the washing. It's through a, it's through a bath, so to speak. The removal of guilt, the removal of sin, the removal of stains. This washing happens when we experience, notice the language, a rebirth and a renewal. Jesus calls it being born again in John 3.3. 3. He says, very, very truly, I tell you that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Paul uses a different image, 2 Corinthians 5.17. 7, he calls it becoming a new creation. He says, therefore, if if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. All of these speak to this conversion, this rebirth, this renewal that happens when we place our faith in Jesus. I think Paul has in mind Ezekiel 36, 25 through through 27, where uh, the image of washing, the image of God giving us a new heart, of having a heart transplant, so to speak, spiritually speaking. Notice what Paul says. Uh, Notice what Ezekiel says in chapter 36. It's a promise. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Notice the image of of washing. I will will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a, a new heart and a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit, notice, it's through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul says. And I will put my spirit in you. And notice, I will move you to follow my decrees and to be careful to keep my laws. Notice what Paul is saying. It's not enough to be washed. It's not enough just to have our our sins forgiven. We need our very person, our very nature to be put to death so that we might have new spiritual life who desires obedience, who wants to follow God. We have to be, in the words of Jesus, born again. And so salvation, it's a demonstration of God's love. It's, it's not by merit, it's by mercy. And it's through a rebirth by the Holy Spirit. Finally, salvation is eternity securing. Notice, so that, here's the goal, here's the purpose of God's salvation in Christ. So that, having been justified, 
declared righteous by his grace, we might become heirs. We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life, right? And so we are declared righteous. We are declared innocent, not guilty before God. Why? Towards what end? So that we might be adopted as his son, that we might be adopted as his daughter, that we might become an heir to God our Father. And what is our inheritance? Eternal life, right? Eternal life is our inheritance. I think this truth that Paul speaks of is beautifully portrayed in in a poem by Harriet Bell. It reads like this. She says, My father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands, of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold. His coffers are full, his riches untold. My father's son, the savior of men, once wandered on earth as the poorest of them. But now he is reigning forever on high and will give me a home in heaven by and by. Notice this last phrase. I once was an outcast, stranger on earth, a sinner by choice and an alien by birth. But, but I've been adopted, my name's written down, an heir to a mansion, a robe and a crown. Friends, that's true of you. And that's true of me. If you are a Christian, you are an heir to eternal life. So why does Paul share all of this? Why does he speak about this salvation that God has brought into our life? Well, he does so because he wants to motivate us. He wants to motivate us to mimic the grace of God that God has shown us in our relationship with other people. He says, this is what God has done for you. How can you not do it to other people? Because you've been saved by grace. You can be gracious to people who, frankly, are maybe annoying to you, right? You can show kindness and love when it's not merited. Because God showed kindness and love to you when you didn't deserve it. You can show mercy to the person who has wronged you because God has shown mercy to you when you wronged him. Because God declares us not guilty, we can offer people grace and unmerited favor. So why, why can we be good to others? We used to be like them. God has been gracious to us. And finally, verse 8, number 3. Because God's grace generates good works. What Paul does in verse 8 is he puts a tidy little bow on this section. It's a summary statement. It's, a, it's meant to kind of conclude all that he's been saying. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, this statement of God's grace that we've just seen. He says, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you, Titus, to stress these things, that is in the churches of Crete, so that, notice, why? Why should Titus stress everything that God has done for the church. Why is he supposed to stress these things? Well, Paul tells us why. So that those who have trusted in God, Christians, may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Your translation may say, to good works. He says, these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. That is, when Christians are engaged in doing good works, it is an excellent thing to do morally, and it's profitable, it's useful to everyone, right? Paul's exposition on the grace of God in verses 3 through 8 gives us the expected result in the life of Christians, right? That is, we should be careful to to do what is good. I like what one uh, one author by the name of Goodspeed, he, he says it this way. He says, believers were to, quote, make it their business to do good. We're to make it our business to do good things. You could, you could say it this way. Grace generates good 
works in our lives. So church, how are we doing on this? Is grace motivating you to do good, to be good, to help those who are helpless, to have an impact on your world, to be kind and generous and helpful, good, forgiving to those who are not members of Christ's church? If you were a believer today, if you have been born again, if you have experienced this rebirth, then friend, you have experienced much grace. You have experienced much grace. More grace than someone buying you a new car. Infinitely more grace than someone giving you a wad of cash so you can get a new car. You have been purchased back from the dead. You have been purchased back from hell. You have been adopted as a son and daughter. You have been made an heir. So how can we not allow this experience of God's grace to generate good works in our homes and in our communities and around the world. Friends, grace experienced should lead to grace extended. May God give us the grace to extend it far and wide. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing grace that you have shown to us through your son, Jesus. Father, far more than a a gift of money or a gift of a new car, far more should our experience of salvation, far more should our experience of your incredible love and kindness, far more uh, your mercy, far more your rebirth, far more making us heirs, Father, far more grace have we experienced than that. And so may you turn our hearts towards those who are not believers. May we recall our days in their shoes. And may we never forget where we came from. May we show your kindness and grace to them because we were like them and you have shown that grace to us. And so please, we pray, cause us, cause your grace in our hearts to extend that grace far and wide for the namesake of Jesus and God's people said, amen, amen. Guys, thanks for coming. See you next week as we wrap up Titus.